Well, all eyes are on the Supreme Court of the United States. So almost two weeks ago, I think, that a draft opinion that would essentially overturn the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision was leaked, causing the cultural fissure that exists in America to grow deeper and wider. There's a Christian who believes in the historic teachings of the church throughout the ages. I've longed prayed for a day when abortion on demand would come to an end. But I don't think that that day is upon us, regardless of whatever the court's decision may be. I've looked for and prayed for a day when Roe would be overturned based on a change of heart maybe due to the increasing technology that lets us see inside the womb that increasingly shows the humanity and the personality of children in the womb. But if the polls are accurate, the majority of Americans want abortion to be legal. And their concerns are for the rights of the mother, which I fully understand. But they either ignore the life and humanity of the child in the womb or they recognize the life and humanity of the child in the womb but believe, as Dr. Peter Singer from Princeton University believes, that such people, though they're human beings, are not ethically relevant human beings. Whatever the court decides, if there's not a large-scale change of heart, I think that very little will really change, or it won't change for long. Law simply can't make us good. I want to read to you today from John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. He sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, of Moses, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. And what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. 
And Father, as we consider your word today, we ask, oh Father, that you'd give to us a vision of the grandeur of your grace. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Early in his gospel, John told us that the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament does not set up an antagonism between God's law and God's grace in themselves. But there is an antagonism between law and grace when they're seen as competing ways of making us right. And so we're told variously things that at first might seem confusing. We're told things that seem to uh, give credence to the law and say that it's good, and on the other hand, that uh, the law is something that uh, we need to be wary of. So we're told things in Romans chapter, like this in Romans chapter 7, that the law is spiritual in verse 14, and the law is good in verse 12. But we're told as well in Romans 3 that by the law, no one will be justified. Paul tells us in Galatians 2.21 that if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Law can give instruction, it can set boundaries, it can compel behavior, can prescribe penalties, but law can't change people's hearts. Regardless of what a court rules or a legislature passes, laws can't change hearts. And Paul says that that's so even with regard to God's law. He said in Galatians chapter 3 that if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But law, Paul says in Romans 8, has been weakened by our flesh by our sin, by our separation from God. And you know, people can be careful to follow all the rules and yet have an embittered and a sinful heart. The passage that we read today is a cryptic one. Reports that Jesus bent down and he began to write something in the dirt as the religious lawyers were talking to him and questioning him. It doesn't tell us what he wrote, but what he wrote seems to have had a profound effect on them. And, and we're almost compelled to speculate, what on earth could Jesus have been writing? And we have no way of ever knowing for sure. But what we do know for sure is that there are limits to law. We know that from our own experience and we know that from what the Bible tells us. And one of those limits comes about from the fact that our 
fickle heart reflexively apply law selectively. Isn't it true? We're, we're careful lawyers when it suits us to be so. Though in both Testaments, God tells us that uh, he despises partiality, everyone shows it. You can see it in our one-party system of government, the Republicrats or the Democans, call them whatever you'd like. I'm not saying that they have the same agendas uh, or the same um, superficial philosophy, but I've noticed over the years, you know, when it comes down to some fundamental questions, like uh, are supermajorities and filibusters principled and good? Well... Yes, if you're in the minority, and no, if you're in the majority. And it doesn't matter which party is in the minority or the majority. Their principles flip back and forth depending on how it suits them. I see it happen at presbytery meetings. The rules of presbytery are applied more broadly or more narrowly by any given member, depending on whether business is going the way he wants it to or not. You know, I wish I could tell you that I'm the neutral observer, the exception to the rule, but as I examine my own heart, I'm not so sure I can tell you that. And we see the selectivity of it here as Jesus was teaching the scribes and Pharisees they, they bring a woman, and you can imagine that, that they drag her in. They've either got her by the cloak or by the arm. They pull her in as Jesus is teaching there in Jerusalem, and they push her out in front. And they say this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And in response, we're told that Jesus went over and he bent down and he began to write on the ground. And it's funny, the perspective that we're given here is this perspective of where you're standing, right? You can't see what it is that I'm writing on the ground. And we're not told here what is being written On the ground, but as the story unfolds, it has a profound impact on those who brought this woman. What could he have written that would have had such a powerful impact on them? Well, we can't make it a tenet of faith, certainly. It might be helpful to reflect on what he might have written. Some people suggest that what he did is he stooped down and he began to write out the Ten Commandments. And as he did that, their consciences got the best of them. I wonder if that would have been it. Some of these people were scribes. They wrote the law every day. That was their job to copy the law. The Pharisees read the commandments every day. Maybe, maybe when Jesus wrote them, it had an impact. 
But I wonder if that was really it. And somebody suggested that um, Jesus, when he bent down, wrote out the names of women that they had had encounters with. Maybe. All of them? Perhaps, perhaps, Jesus wrote down the passage that they were referring to. That passage is Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10, and it's kind of a two-part passage. Perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps that's what Jesus wrote. It's a two-part passage, and Jesus writes, and then he stands up and he talks to them, and he writes again. And I wonder if Jesus stooped down, and he wrote the first part of that, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, and he stands up, and he says, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stooped down to write, and I wonder if he wrote the second part of that verse. Both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. On seeing whatever it was that Jesus was writing and hearing what he said, they began to leave the older ones first because age usually brings a certain amount of wisdom. I've met some people who were wiser when they were younger, but not too many. It's interesting, though, that people who pride themselves on being righteous as the Pharisees, as the scribes did, tend to apply the law selectively to condemn their enemies while excusing their friends or themselves. To easily see the sin of some, but to discount the sin of others. And if you're honest with yourself, don't you tend to do the same? That's why Paul told us that the law, powerless as it was, weakened through our flesh. We're told of another ulterior motive of an ungracious heart here, and that is to use the law for ulterior motives. You know, I wish I could say again that you never saw anything like this in the church, that I'd never seen anything like this at Presbytery, but I have. Sometimes members of Presbytery will have a theological disagreement with each other. Now, it won't be a question of orthodoxy of the uh, creeds or councils of the early church. It won't be a question of the confessions of catechism or uh, confession and catechisms. It will be something up above that, but it will be some disagreement that they have. And when somebody comes up to be examined for licensure or ordination, these people will fight a proxy war on the hapless candidate. Mr. Sane is laughing. He knows what I'm talking about. He's seen it. And they'll use a candidate for licensure or an unrelated issue to fight a proxy 
The scribes and Pharisees were using the law for an ulterior motive here. We're told that when, they, that when they came and they said to him, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? We're told that they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. You know, they do a similar thing in Luke chapter 21. They'd come to him, they'd say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Because most of the population in Judea held that it really wasn't, that this was a pagan government that had uh, come and had um, unlawfully really taken charge over them, and, and that it was wrong to pay tribute to Caesar. And so uh, if he said, well, yes, we should pay taxes to Caesar, then they could denounce him to the people and he would be hated by the people. And if he said, no, we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, then they could accuse him to the governor of rebellion. And they do a similar thing here. She's committed adultery. Moses said, stone her. What do you say? Because if he says, don't stone her, then he's contradicted the Bible. And if he says, stone her, then he'll be guilty of breaking Roman law because the Romans had taken away the death penalty from the Jews. And they thought they'd put Jesus in a no-win situation. We do similar things, don't we? We're little concerned with the HOA covenants or the town ordinance or the book of church order or the Bible until we want to accomplish something by it. There are limits to law. But what the law was powerless to do, weakened as it was through the sinful nature, God did by sending his son. The law came through Moses, grace and truth through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's limits to law, but there is an unbounded grandeur to grace. And I want to correct a common misunderstanding that I hear today. Grace does not condone sin. Grace does not condone sin. The charge against this woman seems to have been real enough. They're not making it up. Jesus doesn't, when they leave, say, just go on your way. It's no big deal. He tells her to go and don't do that anymore. Don't live like that anymore. Don't be like that anymore. God's law condemns things like adultery, like uh, premarital cohabitation, like homosexual behavior. Grace does not condone those things. The attitude that's so common today of, hey, look, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, it's fine. It's not grace. Grace understands that sin brings harm to oneself and others, even when we don't recognize it right away. You know, oh, that all sin was like a hot stove, that the moment you touched it, you got burned, and we'd know to stay away from sin. But it seems good at the first. Grace understands that sin is what separates us 
from God. And, and the more we're separated from God, the more we go into sin. God's grace has come in Jesus Christ to heal that breach, to fill that gap. But here's the amazing thing about grace. Grace starts with no condemnation. Woman, where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? Then neither do I condemn you. Go and stop sinning. You see that it begins with no condemnation. Neither do I condemn you. But now go and do this. See, this is the common idea that I find sometimes, even among Christians, that, that sin gets defined as what I want to do that brings me joy and fulfillment, but which God says I can't do. And so being religious means that I can't do those things anymore. I just have to keep the rules. In fact, God knows that sin brings us ruin and misery. I, I know people and have ministered to people uh, over the last several decades who've borne the scars of adultery, not only as the victims, but of the perpetrators. The scars of promiscuity, the scars of homosexual behavior. Didn't seem bad to them at the first did more damage to them than they could have ever imagined. God knows the damage that you're doing to yourself and to others that I'm doing by our sin. He wants to deliver you from it, not leave you in it. And he can do so, and he does do so, not by law, but by grace. There are limits to law, but there's a grandeur to grace. Law cannot change our hearts. Living as fallen people in a fallen world, when law comes to us, it sounds like accusation. And what happens when we're accused? You know, you, you, you go into work on a certain day and, and you're barraged with an accusation for something that you've done. And what do you tend to do? You tend to defend yourself. Law comes and it, and it punches you in the face and we put up our dukes. And so we selectively apply the law. We use it for ulterior motives. And law, not even God's law, can change our hearts. But God's grace can. And grace, if it is really grace, does not condone or downplay sin but it disarms us of our defensiveness by beginning with acceptance, by beginning with no condemnation. Neither do I condemn you. And then it says, God has forgiven you. God has accepted you. Don't live like that anymore. And why would we? 
It was living in those ways that separated us from God. Come the end of this summer, will the laws change in the U.S.? Maybe. Will hearts change? They certainly will not as a result of law. I don't know who you identify with more in this story, the woman or the Pharisees and the scribes. But you know that both of them are in need of grace. Both of them are in need of grace. And you and I are in need of grace, of forgiveness, of acceptance, of cleansing. And that's why Jesus came. And he invites you to come to him today and to deeply drink of God's grace. Will you do it? There are limits to law, but there is an unbounded grandeur to grace. Father, thank you that grace and truth have come through the Lord Jesus Christ. Part of that truth is the truth about ourselves and our sin. But Lord, you begin with no condemnation. Jesus didn't say to this woman, now go and leave your life of sin and then I won't condemn you either. Now he begins with grace, neither do I condemn you. He begins with no condemnation and what, what flows from that has to be the living consistently with that healing, that pardon, that grace that you've come to give us despite our sin. Pray for myself and everyone who's here with us and everyone who may be watching over the internet that you'd help us to drink deeply of that grace and to walk in it For the glory and for the joy of your Son, Jesus, and for ours. Amen.